What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When an octopus is literally reaching out to you, they want to know, who are you? What have you got that would interest me? So up from the water comes their questing suckers, and they want to taste you, and they want to feel you and they want to look at your face. I'm more than eager to meet them halfway. That's Cy Montgomery, the author and octopus whisperer. Right before we sat down to talk, Cy introduced me to her latest octopus friend, Rudy. Rudy is a giant Pacific octopus. She lives at the New England Aquarium in Boston, and she must have liked how I looked and tasted because she spent a good 20 minutes apparently trying to pull me into her tank. Sai, I'm so excited to be talking to you today because you know octopuses, and I think I think the octopus is my favorite animal. Oh, good. Well, I see why. And the thing is, the thing that's so interesting to me about talking with you is we talk about communication and relating all the time, but you communicate in ways that we haven't talked about yet. You communicate with animals that it seems to me to be really different and special. Is it different from the way you communicate with people? I think so because I find it natural to be with animals. They're, they're like my people, and sometimes I feel awkward with people. Now, that's interesting. Well, how do you do it with animals that's different than with people? What, what, in what way do you engage them? that's different? Well, some of them are very interested in us. Uh. And an octopus is one of the creatures that is very interested in us. And when an octopus is literally reaching out to you, I'm more than eager to meet them halfway. And you can, you can see it. And it's, and it's very real. And sometimes with people, you know, we bring, we bring a mask to the meeting. Uh. And uh. animals, now animals can conceal their own feelings. As you, you probably know, chimpanzees will actually clap their hands over their mouth to prevent themselves from saying, oh, great, all the bananas are here, because they don't want everybody else to know. <laughs> and no, I didn't know you'll that. You'll actually see them do that. <laughs> and octopuses, too, can lie. They can say, I'm not an octopus. I'm, I'm just a piece of algae. 
Oh, no, I'm six poisonous sea snakes. So they can lie, too. Well, how do they do that? By changing their color or what? Yeah, they can change their color. They can change their shape. They can change the texture of their skin. They can. In less than a second. Wow. The giant Pacific doesn't have as big a range of colors as some octopuses. But there are some octopuses that can just be covered with stripes. Stripes? Covered with spots. And then be all one color. And then if that doesn't work, they can shoot out ink, which looks like an octopus. And while the pre- you know, the thing that they, um, the predator is following the ink blob, which looks just like an octopus, I've <sighs> seen this, the octopus itself jets away, turns color, oh, jets away. A, They're just and this is animals. All, now, to what extent would you say that's conscious behavior? Well, I think the octopus knows, usually they'll try a bunch of other stuff before they ink. Oh. I mean, not always, but they they often will. Um, because they have so many options, and they'll go through different options. It's like, okay, I tried to be invisible, and that didn't work. And like, <laughs> gee, then I turned white and tried to make my eyes look really huge, and that didn't work. And yet the shark is still coming, so I better just shoot out the ink. Oh, there's another cool thing about the ink. The ink, octopus ink, has substances in it that some scientists think may chemically affect the brain of the predator to make them think they've already eaten the octopus. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think you've got to bottle this ink and sell it to people who are on a diet. I know. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, my gosh. We could make a million dollars. Just to turn off the machine, and we'll, we'll, we've got to get call up the factory. <laughs> Do you want to be the octopus milker? <laughs> I'm kind of busy right now. <laughs> that intelligence is so interesting. The first time I saw an octopus was in the aquarium at Naples in Italy. And it was an extraordinary experience. We were doing Scientific American Frontiers. And they had two octopuses. One knew how to open a jar and take out a shrimp. And the other one was one who didn't know it. And they let the one who didn't know how to open the jar in the tank with the jar with the shrimp in it. And it kept poking at the glass. It kept trying to figure out how to get to the shrimp, but it didn't figure it out. Then it stayed over on the side and watched as the one who did know how to open it went in, unscrewed the top, took out the shrimp. Then they put the one who didn't know and who have just observed it once, in with a jar with a shrimp, and boom. I mean, faster than I can describe it. Whipped off the lid and got the shrimp out. Wow. Just from one viewing. Don't you wish your students were that fast? I wish I was that smart. I mean, it's <laughs> I like saying you get in a car, you watch the guy drive, and then you enter a race. Right. We, we could all use our iPhones, if, if only. Yeah. I still don't know how to use my iPhone. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Friends will say, look, did you ever try this? Uh, no. I, what, what is How do you do that? I'm so afraid But an octopus would have no problem, also have no problem having it slip out of their hands. No. <laughs> Those suction cups are perfect. I know. <laughs> Tell me about the suction cups. What do they use them for mostly? Wow. Well, um, they can use them to open a clam, 
for example. Huh. And if you've ever had to open, well, have you ever opened an oyster? Have you ever eaten a no, fresh oyster? No, I keep away from oysters. Okay, well, that's that's probably good for the oysters. But anyway, they're hard. They're hard to open. Um, there's like videos teaching you how to do it, but an octopus can use its suckers to just pull that apart. A three inch diameter sucker, which a, a big male would certainly have suckers that big, can lift 30 pounds. Mm. And with one sucker. With one. And they have 200 suckers on each of their eight arms. So the tremendous force that they can exert with their suckers is just, you know, it gives them this amazing superpower. But there's more. There's always more with octopuses. Um they also can do a pincer grip with their suckers. They can untie a knot tied in surgical silk. Wait a minute. With, with, because they can move their suckers in such a way that it would be like two fingers coming together? Exactly. Exactly. And they have such dexterity that they can untie a knot. Incredible. Incredible. But, wow. you know, the female octopus, when she lays her eggs, she braids them together almost like, you know, those onions that you see hanging in Italian uh -huh. restaurants. She does that with her suckers. But here's the other amazing superpower they have just to their suckers. I mean, we're talking about one, just one thing on the octopus. They taste with all of their skin, including their eyelids. But their ability to taste is most exquisitely developed in the suckers. So if you're meeting an octopus... When they put their suckers on you, they're feeling you and tasting you at the same time. What do you think is going on in the brain? What's their experience of tasting us like? I know what the experience of hearing you is like, of seeing you. Mm. Have you imagined what it could possibly be like for them? What kind of an image or experience do they get from the way they sense you? Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. I mean, this is what I think about. <laughs> I'm never thinking about, like, what I'm going to wear. I'm always thinking, like, what does it feel like to an, an octopus to do this? And there's some people who have synesthesia. You know, they can, they can taste, uh, colors. taste colors and yeah. they can hear um, sights. And it, I think that an octopus must live in that kind of a world. But, you know, they're also in the water, and the water is bringing them such richness, such a rich experience of, of pressure and taste and other chemoreceptive. They must live in such a rich world. And, you know, they only, they only live like three to five years, and that's so tragic. But then I think... In the three to five years that, that most octopus species can live, they've experienced so much more of the world and in such a vivid way that maybe they've lived a full, full, full life fuller than ours in just a short time, that their senses are literally filled again and again by this world. So you can't think of anything more unlike us, and yet... So what do they do that you feel is a communication between you and them? Well, first, they choose to come over to see you because they don't have to. But they'll come right over if they like you. If if they don't like you, they won't go near you, like most animals. If they 
if they go away, they don't want to see you. But if they come, and um, if, if if they're curious, so they want to know who are you? What have you got that would interest me? So up from the water comes their questing suckers, and they want to taste you, and they want to feel you, and they want to look at your face. But here's the other thing about octopuses. Even though I have had friends who are octopuses, and yet most octopuses, to our knowledge, are not social. Among themselves, they're not social, huh? No, not to our knowledge. But again, it's so hard to study them in the wild because, I mean, first, here's your octopus, all right? And he's like red and he's this big and he might have bumps all over him. And then you swim away and you come back the next day and there's an octopus there, but he's blue. And, you know, <laughs> you don't know you're even seeing the same octopus over and over. Oh, so, right. <laughs> you know, and they move around a lot. So what about, do they, they, they have to get semi-social when mating. Is there a, a courtship of some kind? And, or is it just somebody deciding to mate? Well, there's many different species and they may do things differently. But one of the big problems in mating is it can be a dinner date. Oy, oy, oy. Yes, they do cannibalize. Why do I talk to these people about it? <laughs> yeah, can't I know, we, that can't didn't we go be nice? well. <laughs> And in some, they have this thing, uh, some species, they do this thing called distance mating. And the male, he, he situates his den over here next to the female, and he just takes his specialized third right arm and while he hides in his den, he sends his third right arm out and tries to stuff the, the sperm packet into her mantle without exposing the rest of his body. <laughs> why, why does he do that? So she doesn't eat him. <laughs> I have to go now. Why, why would she be, in, uh, is it she's feeling attacked or she just wants a good meal? She might want a good meal. I mean, a lot, a lot of animals do that. I mean, not that many animals, but there, there's, there's a number of, of insects and spiders, for example, who yeah, will do well, that. And, you know, sometimes mantises. you just don't feel like doing it, right? And yeah. so... <laughs> well, I can picture a bite, but to have a whole meal... <laughs> So I, it's nice that you get inured to this and you just call it a dinner date. That's great. Well, you know, on February 14, for many years, I hope they still do it, Seattle Aquarium has the octopus blind date. And they introduce a male and a female. Oh, and they let children watch this? Well, honest to God, I went one year. My husband, he's such a saint, you know, on Valentine's Day, where is your wife watching octopus have sex across the country? But um, children are sitting there. I mean, they don't understand human sex as if I do either. <laughs> but they're seeing this and they're just completely confused. Um, and they have had instances in which it did not work out in the worst way. But the one that I saw, actually, it was a, a mating that was very gentle and, and very sensuous and very lovely. And when they were done, they lay wrapped in each other's arms and they turned white, which is the color of a relaxed octopus. And one person said, well, they're having the cigarette now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very lovely. And no one actually said anything snide or it, it really was, 
very romantic. And I was describing this to my girlfriend. We were going to New York for some reason on the train, the train you're going to take. And I I said, yes. And, you know, he saw her. He turned bright red with emotion. And they, they flew into each other's arms. And the suckers were everywhere. And the, the train was silent. Oh, everybody had been listening Everyone to was listening because they didn't know what they were hearing, but they knew they, it was very They didn't very know there was an sexy. octopus involved. You're right. right. <laughs> <laughs> All those commuters were treated to something they did not expect. <laughs> I read or I heard you say somewhere that you would have preferred to be an animal rather than a human when you were a kid. Did oh, I have yeah. You really? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, my how, parents— How old were you when you were aware of thinking that? Pretty much as soon as I could speak, I announced that I really was a horse. And You wanted to be a horse first? Well, I said I was a horse. Oh, you were a horse. I was a horse. I had to explain this to my parents, and my mother was very upset and went to the pediatrician to try to, you know— She should have took it to her veterinarian. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's exactly what she should do to this day. What made you want to be a horse or think you were a horse? What See, was there about the horse remember. experience? I can't remember. But but the pediatrician told my mother that I would outgrow that phase. And I did. But when I did, I announced I was a dog. How did your parents handle that? Did they pet you like a dog or did they give into <laughs> the image a little bit or what? My father called me Pony for a long time when I was in my horse phase and then continued to call me Pony for a while. Um, did you bite him for that? No. <laughs> Oh, my father was wonderful. He he was he was great. He loved animals too. Um, and my mother had a dog when she was growing up named Flip, who she loved very much. I think most of it. The dog is the gateway drug for the animals, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got a dog? No, I I had dogs I loved as a child, and then mm. our, our children had a dog for a while, but not mm. now. But my wife and I look at dogs on the street the way we used to look at babies in carriages when we didn't have grandchildren. Oh, yet. that's great. Now we look at the dogs, but you can't travel much if you have a dog. What do you I do know. with all your animals and your chicken when you have to oh, go well, away? I- my husband um, doesn't want to go on my trips because they're all full of bugs. So he stays with the animals. And he's a writer as well. So he's, and he writes a lot about New England and he doesn't need to do the travels that I do. So yeah. he takes care Tell of me critters. about your work as a writer. You, you're such an extraordinary writer because, you know, the, our show, while it's called Clear and Vivid, it's unusual to find somebody who's both clear and vivid and so full of feeling for the subject, the way you are when you're writing about animals. You you talk about making friends with an animal, and I believe it, mm. even though I have felt friendly toward dogs and was convinced a dog felt friendly toward me. But I get, I get the impression that you're describing an experience that I haven't really had, a, deep, a deeper experience, and you are able to communicate that in words. Is there a technique you have to be able to do that? How do you do it? Uh, it's just part of me. I, I want to know. When I, when I meet an animal, I want to know, who are you? What's it like to be you? And 
I guess this is what we do with our friends when you yeah. get to know someone. You know, what is it like to be you? I'm so interested in what makes you you. I am so open to whatever you're going to teach me or show me. You know, oh, you moved your ear. That's fab- fabulous. You know. <laughs> so how did you get this way? <laughs> how did I get this way? <laughs> oh. When did it start, your ability to connect with so many animals? Can you remember the first time you had a special relationship with an animal? I was told that um, before I was two, I toddled into the hippo pen at the Frankfurt Zoo in Germany. My parents had let go of me for a minute. You toddled into where? The the hippo pen. Oh, my God. Yes. And I was fine, and the hippos were fine, but when my parents discovered it, they were unhappy because that wouldn't be very good. <laughs> but, you know... The hippos weren't annoyed by me, and I didn't do a lot of running around and screaming. Um, I always was kind of quiet and liked watching animals, so they weren't bothered by me. How many animals, and, and, and I'm always stuck with this, about saying animals when I really mean other animals, but just to make it easier, how many animals do you have in your around your house now? Oh, not enough. Right now, well, the problem is we used to have we used to have chickens who were dear friends and we live in New Hampshire and there's been a wonderful resurgence in native animals including the predators. And our chickens were free range, they just ran around all the time anyway. So, um the predators got everyone but one chicken and she now lives in a flock down the street where I still visit her. Um, we had a 750-pound pig named Christopher Hogwood who lived to 14. Um, but then he died, and I travel a lot, so my husband didn't want to fill the barn up. So right now, we just have Thurber, our four-year-old border collie. But I think he needs a brother or sister. What did Christopher Hogwood do that exhibited this intelligence I keep hearing about with regard to pigs. Oh, man. Well, first of all, he was an escape artist. Really? An escape artist? Yes. What would he get out of? He would get out of his pen, and and we put a billion bungee cords on this pen. We had um, one of those sliding bolt locks that Mm. didn't just slide, but you had to slide and then twist it. Mm. And he would thread his flexible nose disc through the opening, the slats, in uh, the the um, gate of his pen. And somehow, between his nose disc and his lips, he would undo the bo- bungee cords, and he would flip and slide the, the bolt, and he would get out and go visiting people. <laughs> when, when these animals escape... Do they come back to the the place where they came from so they can be fed, or do they try to really get away? Oh, he just wanted company, um, uh. and he would he would come back. But usually, you know, most people, if they discover a seven hundred fifty pound pig on their lawn, they they're eager to let you know about it. And um, our our local cop, our our town now has several police officers, but we only had one back back then. 
He kept apples in the cruiser specifically to lead Christopher Hogwood home when he would go on his (laughs) trot. He would get out that often. Yeah, yeah, everybody knew. That's how I met my neighbors. Because Because they had your pig. Yes. They would call me up and they'd say, there's a black and white spotted pig on my lawn. Is it yours? And I would be, yes. When we come back from this short break, Cy Montgomery tells me how she manages to bond with so many different animals. And I tell her about the dubious distinction I have of having a tarantula named after me. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Cy Montgomery. How do you make friends with an animal? What do you, what's your first step? I let the animal see that I'm there. Yeah. Um, pretty much the same way Jane Goodall did with, with the chimpanzees. Jane, when she went into the field in 1960, what she did differently from other people who tried and failed to study chimps they tried to hide from the chimps, but the chimps had excellent eyesight and they could see you and they, they didn't like you sneaking around. So she sat on this place she called the peak and let them see her and get used to her and learn that she was harmless. And that's what I did the first time I studied animals formerly in the wild. I studied emus in Australia and I just let them know that I was there and that I wasn't going to harm them. What is there about an emu that I, I should know? They have a great sense of humor. A sense of humor? Yes, I saw. This was so cool. I saw the emus that I was studying. They were, they were three. They were probably siblings. I saw them um, play a prank on the <gasps> ranger's dog. Oh, come on. What, <laughs> how did that work? Well, the ranger's dog was always hooked up to a chain because it was a park ranger and you couldn't have your dog run around killing all the wombats and stuff. Uh, so, uh, and the dog was pretty happy on the chain. Well, the emus knew 
how long the chain was. They knew exactly how long the chain was. And they would go up to that dog and they would get just to the end of the chain. And then they would leap up in the air and they would thrash their feet around and they'd take their little wing stumps and their necks would go flying around. The dog would be going mad, you know, and going to the end of the chain, sock, you know, pull back, sock. And they thought this was hilarious. And they did this for a while. And then they had their fill and they just strolled off and they sat down and they preened themselves. It was just like a person who, you know, you, you, you rub your nails on your shirt and then blow on them. They felt like, wow, that was so entertaining. <laughs> I think I've been very good about not asking you about some of your adventures, such as swimming with penguins. Oh, I know. That was so interesting. Yeah, it was cold, too. I didn't connect with them, I don't think. No, but you were with them, right? Yeah. Yeah, I swam with turtles and uh, sea. Um, what what do you call them? Uh, sea lions. Oh sea wow, lions. they're th- big. Yeah, yeah, there was a female who really liked me. Really? Yeah, you never know. She gave me a little hip bump. I think. Did she? Yeah. Oh my gosh, were you yeah. surprised by that? Well, I was attracted, but I'm a married man. <laughs> oh man! Wow. And then and then a, a turtle came by. And I took a ride on him for a while. Really? So I, re- I read that you had a tarantula mm. in your, what did he cross your palm? Oh, yeah. I've picked up several tarantulas. You pick them up? You don't pick them up the way you would pick up like a, a spoon or a fork. You don't pick them up with your hand going down. That's how a predator kills them. What you do is you put your palm out. And let them walk And in. let them walk. And as well, long from as from one the, hand to another, yeah, yeah, and sometimes they'll want to walk, you know, on your head or uh, around, and that's nice. Um, you know, but, all my life since I was about nine years old, I've had a fear and an aversion to tarantulas. And I was doing Scientific American Frontiers one day, and we had a wonderful tarantula expert who had named a new species after me. Wow. What, it was a great honor, which I was disgusted by because <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid of the animals. And we, in the course of the program, we were dealing with fear of spiders and a woman who was terribly phobic about spiders took a, a course in virtual reality and at the end of the show, could allow a spider to walk across her hand. Oh, so I nice. thought, well, if she can do it, I'm going to do it. And I let this big tarantula walk across my hand, and it felt great. Oh, lovely. Those little pads on the feet. Yes. Mm. And the slight pressure as it walked was a, a, a friendly animal. feeling. I, I like that. Oh, that is so great. So tell me, it does does the tarantula named after you have a common name as well? I don't know. It's uh, Hapalosis oldana. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, I've got to look that up. It's a little guy. Oh, how little? I don't know, like the two thumbs across, I think. Oh, okay. I've come in contact with a lot of really interesting animals. What, what, do, you, what do you think is the animal that you've learned the most from? Boy, well... 
I learned them from Christopher Hogwood, our pig. Tell me about that. He he was so outgoing. And I'm very shy, like very shy. The the only thing I know to talk about really is animals. Um but Christopher Hogwood showed me how much fun it was to be with people. He enjoyed people. And he's the one who introduced me to children. I don't have any children. Growing up, I was an only child. My mother liked to tell me she'd drown all her foolish children and didn't have nephews or nieces that I saw regularly. So I really didn't know how much fun they were until Christopher Hogwood attracted the little girls who moved in next door. And we're we're still friends. I've been to both of their weddings. Um, but soon, all the kids in the neighborhood were coming over to play with Christopher Hogwood and to feed him chocolate donuts. And we'd do this thing called pig spa. Where we would wash him with warm, soapy water when we'd rub his hooves with the hoof maker to make them shine. And um, he's really the one. He introduced me to all my neighbors because he got out. And they would call me up, and I would run over there half the time in my pajamas, you know. And and by the time I met them, he'd already charmed them. And so I wasn't afraid of talking to them. Mm. So he taught me a lot about how to be a good person, you know. And um, and the other animal, I think, that, that has just really opened another world to me is the octopus. Mm. Because... They are so otherworldly. And the gloriousness of this planet, a creature like that, with all those superpowers, so sensitive, such a vivid life, so immersed in the living sea, such a short life, but such a meaningful intelligence life. I mean, it just makes you feel like the whole universe is ablaze with, with love of life, mm. with consciousness, with... There's this wonderful quote attributed to Thales of Miletus that says, the universe is alive and has fire in it and is full of gods. And that's what octopuses have shown me, that the universe is so sacred and so holy and so alive. Mm, that's, that's really it's really wonderful that you have that experience. I was talking with Lisa Kaltenegger, who was searching for life on other planets in the universe. And the subject came up, how would we communicate with them if they have a completely different way of communicating from anything we've ever seen? And I wondered if she thought it was a good idea to start on Earth communicating with animals who are enough unlike us that we'd find something out that could be useful talking to a species on another planet no matter how intelligent they might be, they, they, could, they could, could communicate in a way that would be unintelligible to us. And you make me think that the octopus is a great person to start with. Yes, they really, they really are. There's this 
question that I think your, your work, your writing, your enthusiasm, your experience raises all the time, which is, are we in trouble if we anthropomorphize animals or don't we anthropomorphize them enough? Mm, that's such a good question. Well, anthropomorphism, of course, means projecting onto animals traits that belong to humans. But the very word implies that the traits of consciousness, emotion, foresight, learning, thinking, are human traits belonging only to humans. And we know that's not true. Well, for one thing, we had to get them from someplace. Right, exactly. Which is our cousins and forebears. Exactly. And we now know, remember when tool use was the, the Rubicon separating humans mm. from animals? Mm. And then Jane Goodall, and I think it was like 1962, she published that chimpanzees could use tools and that they would fish into termite mounds with little sticks mm -hmm. and the termite would grab onto it and then they could eat the delicious termite. Um, now we know fish use tools, birds use tools, insects use tools, everyone uses tools. The more stuff that we like to say belongs to humans alone, the more we look for it in other species, the more we're finding it. Mm. And, I mean, there's still debate over language, for example. Um, animals do, some animals totally understand not just words, but the order of words syntax. Um, and there's some people who will say, well, that's still not language. Well, but I feel certain that, that animals have language also. And that doesn't mean that humans aren't a unique species. They obviously are. I mean, we obviously have... I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe Rudy is back there talking to another octopus about us. <laughs> Well, of all the animals who can put words together, you're one of the best, and I'm so oh glad to be able to talk to you. Oh, it's this just, was such a just treat. just wonderful. Before we go, we ask seven quick questions. Are you game? Sure. They, they can I be, may not get the right answer, though. Well, whatever answer you give is the right one. What do you wish you really understood? I really wish I understood the, what the colors octopuses uh, turn means. I wish I what could the understand. the meaning of the colors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wish I understood their emotions. I mean, they turn colors for various different reasons, but sometimes I'm certain it's due to emotion, yeah. and I would just love to understand that. That's great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ah. Uh, <laughs> well, often, the first, I say, you know, a lot of people think that, Oh, that's a good beginning. <laughs> and uh, and I thought that. <laughs> that's even better. Otherwise, but then you, I yeah. learned, and then you tell them the thing. <laughs> when, when I, when I, <laughs> that's very good. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Someone asked me this week if I had been a cheerleader. If you had been what? A cheerleader. We were... We were in Somebody just walked in aerobics, up to you and asked you that. In, <laughs> in aerobics. aerobics. Oh, and well, maybe you were doing aerobics great. I have no. I'm like the biggest spaz you ever saw, but I couldn't believe it. It's like, were you a neurosurgeon? No, I wasn't. But anyway, it was, it was very nice of her to ask, but it was the strangest thing anyone ever asked me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, boy, I wish I knew. 
although I have I've learned some techniques. Um, leaving the room usually works <laughs> mm, with an excuse, probably. <laughs> or or you know it would be great. Vultures have this ability; they can projectile vomit when they want you to go away. <laughs> You do learn things from other animals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, how, when you're at a dinner party, you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation? Oh, gosh. I don't have any idea. You know, I, take a fish out of your pocket or something? Honest to God. I mean, I'm terrible at those things. I mean, usually I just suddenly turn to them and say, do you know a whale's tongue weighs as much as a school bus? And then they just kind of move away. So. <laughs> All right. The next to last question. What gives you confidence? My animal teachers. Mm. Often I feel, you know, when I'm, when I'm writing, sometimes it's there and sometimes the muse is gone. And I feel I'm not good enough and I can't do this. And I can't believe in myself. But I can believe in my teachers. What book changed your life? Wow. A lot of them did. Um, now, this would be I a book pick... written by a human. Right. Oh, yeah. gosh. So it, it doesn't count if it's a spider that just wrote in its web. Um, gosh, I've been changed by, by so many books. Um, the Lives of a Cell. Mm. Um, Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Um, the Harmless People. I don't know that one. That's by my best friend, Liz Thomas. She went in the 50s and lived with the Bushmen in Namibia oh. at a time when no one was interested in hunter-gatherers. And she wrote this book admiring their beauty and their skills at, at a time when, you know, there was even worse prejudice than we have now against black people, and people, she got death threats for saying how beautiful and smart these African people were. But that changed my life. It made me admire people a lot more. And the way that she observed them as her friends and her teachers is the way I try to observe animals as my friends and teachers. Well, you've, you've changed the way I look at animals, and I love animals, but you've made me think about them in a, even a deeper way, and I, I'm very grateful. Well, you deserve some octopus hugs and kisses. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode, all the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. As a naturalist and writer, Cy Montgomery has authored 28 books for both adults and children. Her New York Times bestseller, Soul of an Octopus, was a 2015 finalist for the National Book Awards. The Good Pig... Her memoir of life with her pig, Christopher Hogwood, is an international bestseller. To find out more about Cy, you can visit her website at cymontgomery.com. That's S-Y-Montgomery.com. 
I'd like to thank Cy and our new friends at the New England Aquarium in Boston for welcoming all of the Clear and Vivid team behind the scenes at the aquarium to meet Rudy. And I'd like to thank Rudy, too. To learn more about the New England Aquarium, please visit neaq.org. And for our Clear and Vivid Patreon subscribers, don't forget to check out the exclusive video of Rudy and me online. It's really interesting. It's really fun. Visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid for this video and much more. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the host of Public Radio's Science Friday, Ira Flato. From day one, I always thought that I would be successful if people would sit around the dinner table and say something like, guess what I heard on the radio today about, you know, squid or octopus or, or about the universe or whatever, and that people would sit around the dinner table and talk about something they heard as much as they would talk about the latest sports scores. Ira Flato, next time on Clear and Vivid. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions.